Welcome to the Keeney Interviews. Through this series, you will meet leading practitioners from the water sector and hear their stories. Together, we will address water challenges and discuss how best to face them. Keeney is the Malaysian word for current, and this initiative promotes the flow of ideas within the water sector. Today's Kinney interview is with Kusum Athukarala. Kusum is head of the Sri Lanka Water Partnership and she's also the Global Water Partnership Sri Lanka Chair. In today's Kinney interview, Kusum speaks with me about women in irrigation, the need for a gendered perspective in water, sustainable financing, and she also shares with me her story of how she became involved with water and water issues in Sri Lanka. And it's not that traditional hydrology approach that most people I've spoken with have had, so it's really quite a story that she shares. This is also the first interview that I've ever done in person. Most of the interviews I do are virtual, so something different. But it's a great interview and I hope that you enjoy it. With that, I'm Karen Delfo, and I welcome you to soak up the knowledge that Kusum Athakarala shares with us in her Kinney interview. So, Kusum Atu Korala, thank you so much for taking the time here at Korea International Week, National Water Week slash Asia International Water Week to speak with me about your your experience, your past, and uh, also to share some of the work and projects that you've been up to over the last period of time. I'm hoping we can get started by you just introducing yourself and speaking maybe just a couple of the organizations that you're involved with and um, letting everyone know a little bit more about how you got started in this work. Well, uh, I think that uh, I'm uh, what you call a boundary crosser. I certainly didn't start off in the water sector. I, my first uh, training and my first job was in the in English language. Really? Yes. My first degree is in English. Ah. I taught 15, 12 years in the Department of Languages and Cultural Studies. But I think that uh, my first job, which was with the Status of Women Survey in Sri Lanka, totally colored my worldview. One, it, I came from a very, maybe a rather uh, secluded background. I certainly had not been living in the villages, I had not worked with communities, but my first job was when I had to go and work uh, as a research assistant and live in a house and use a toilet without a door. Mm. So, I think that has given me what they call a sanitation fixation. I would say. <laughs> and I mean, every time that I had to use that blessed toilet and hold the door, I, I was literally cursing and saying, this doesn't have to be like this. Mm. So, but uh, afterwards, I also start. I mean, though I was working in a totally different field, I continued to work as a researcher. And uh, I mean, I think it was uh, my study of uh, irrigation rehabilitation schemes, which first opened my eyes to the work that women are doing in irrigation and in water. It was on the field, it was nowhere in any report that I had read because women simply were not there. They were the invisible reality of irrigation. 
And that was the beginning. That was the beginning of... That was the beginning. Of course, well, I had a lot to learn about irrigation and a lot to learn about the internal workings of irrigation systems. And I started questioning issues like, you know, who has access and control of resources? Yes. Who actually does work and what kind of work and when? Because again, this was not in the reports. Then I found that, you know, in, in an irrigation system, a woman would work sometimes up to 18 hours in the harvest season. Again, that was not in the reports. Yeah. So, are we continuing to take development decisions based on very inadequate understanding of the context? I think you would argue that that is the case. It is the case, but it doesn't have to be the case, especially if we are trying to operationalize the SDGs. Because uh, when you are trying to work, um, I, I think it is a big mistake for us to take a particular SDG. We have to look at it in an overall context. Because there are so many interlinkages, there are so many uh, connectors, and it all pushes us towards what I have been believing in for a long time. We have to have an integrated perspective, yes. especially for water. We have to have an integrated water resource management. I see Sri Lanka in terms of its progress in this area over the time that you've been working in that country. The first paper I wrote for Gender and Water for Stockholm Water Symposium in 1996, I think was the first, if not one of the first papers they had on gender and water. That is a comparison of two organizations, two water-related organizations in Sri Lanka. And I found that they were developing in two different directions. The water board went on to becoming aware of communities, which is the first step towards understanding that communities have men and women with differential needs, that they do not have to uh, work the same way, they don't think the same way, they don't have the same demands on time. And I think this is very good because, you know, I, I see this as an organization which has been on a learning curve. Uh, with the irrigation department, it had been more difficult because, I mean, it is until you do your labor participation studies, until you do your, uh, uh, you know, access and uh, access studies, it is very difficult to show why women need to be I know, taken as a different group and why their differential needs needs to be incorporated into development planning. Very often people are not gender sensitive, not because you know they have anything bad about them. Mm. It's just that they do not know. Yeah, they don't have the information they or the understanding. Or maybe it's also not on their radar as a factor that needs to be taken into consideration with them. So it, it is, I think, up to us as researchers and activists to try and highlight the reality so that whatever development dollars that we get into our system goes and hits the right target. Mm. And do you see that, that since 1996, when this paper first came out, do you see that there's been a real shift in a transition in the space? Actually, globally, we have had enormous amount of support coming into uh, gender and water. But there has been, you know, ups and downs. You know, sometimes you might get what I call a gender backlash. Yes. You know, so you might get people, you know, saying, okay, you know, this is getting to be boring. But the fact is that, you know, society is not, a, it's a continuum and it is ever-changing. So the needs of communities also change. 
for instance, when I did these studies, I had differentiated the, the communities into you know the high income, the middle income, and the low income. And the, uh, as people progress, you know, they become upwardly mobile. Their incomes change and their attitudes change. Women who would go in and do infilling and weeding in the field with a better source of income, which might be from or farm management, you know, or farm, uh, or farm employment, would uh, stop doing certain things. Hmm. Very often, they would not want to be seen as doing physical work. So there's always, you know, it's interesting because it's an ever, ever-changing world. Hmm. And you, so you're addressing certain issues around income, but at the same time, there are unintended consequences in terms of who actually will be doing certain types of labor that maybe the women would have done before, mm-hmm. and then that would be need to be managed in addition. That's true. Yeah. So uh, then when you become uh, upwardly mobile, you have more income, more disposable income, you might see yourself as a manager. You would not see yourself as a worker in the field. So mm-hmm. you would may, may be hiring in people, ensuring that you get your labor in time. That's always a case in some uh, agricultural systems. Is there anything that you've seen that has really worked extremely well in Sri Lanka in terms of addressing this issue of, of inclusion and equity? And I'm wondering if you could explore that a little bit and also discuss what not those approaches are applicable for other parts of Asia in that you you work globally, so you also know a lot about what's happening in this space also in other countries throughout the Indo-Pacific. I think that uh, we have, uh, what we have been seeing as a success story is the community-based organizations in Sri Lanka who look at small rural water supply systems. When this first started, women were so desperate to have water, they would, you know, raise, uh, you know, maybe pawn their gold jewelry, they would pawn their chains and raise the money so that they can get the equity because the community has to raise 10% of the project. So then they would, they were very strongly in the management. Now I find that this, uh, with uh, the organizations becoming a little more, uh, how shall I say, settled, uh, having a little, quite a lot more money in the kitty, uh, this is changing. One is that uh, men are more interested in taking over because there is a disposable income, so as to say. Mm-hmm. And uh, women, are, I found that um, in my studies, that women are getting slowly pushed out in some of these systems. So I think that we, if we have to replicate such a uh, activity for Asia, for you know, all the way to the Pacific, as you said, we need to understand that there are phases and that we have to change our uh, uh, strategy to fit every phase. So in terms of this, this transition, and in particular, for me, what I'm hearing from what you're saying is that women were willing to take the risk. They saw the benefit of these sorts of community ownership approaches. They were willing to take the risk where they were effectively liquidating the natural resources in order to partake in it. And now you're seeing that there's less risk because there is direct financial output coming out of these projects and and there's income and people's profiles are rising in terms of how much they're gaining and men are wanting to get in the game. And so that's part of the stage process maybe is just really looking at, at first, how do you support women to take that risk or how do you support anyone to take that risk to look at other case studies and then from there, how do you make sure that the women do maintain their position of authority, in a sense, in these community 
organizations, um, community ownership schemes in the long term so that they don't just get kind of pushed out of the way once it's up and running and working and, and almost the hard work has been done. Yeah, I think that there are two, uh, two issues that we have to keep in mind. That uh, when you put up, set up these community-based organizations, it always comes through a grant to a project or an agency. So uh, what we need to do is to understand that we have to have a critical mass of gender-sensitive professionals, men and women. I don't think this gender is only for women. Very often, you know, it's seen as, oh, this is a women's issue. And No, men and women have to be involved. And they have to be educated. They have to understand that what we are talking is not about women. We are talking of democracy of governance. And that is a cross-cutting issue for everybody. Mm. Yeah, re representation of, yes. of who is being served at, at all stages of governance. And it uh, also... Um, it, I think it also means that we have to uh, spend a lot of time and energy uh, empowering, educating, capacity building, not only for women and men in the field, but also for the young water professionals in our water agencies. Because they have to understand the context that we are not dealing through uh, a wholly technocentric uh, um, approach, that we have to understand Men and women form communities, they have differential needs, and we have to understand that this is, a, uh, this is a continuum which is going to be changing. So you have to be sensitive, you have to have your antenna out. I'd like to address the issue of um, sustainable financing. Mm -hmm. And I know that you have had some tremendous success in terms of engaging non-traditional financers for non-traditional projects. Um, just before we started recording, you were speaking about having a bank sponsor, support, and fund menstrual hygiene program. Can you speak more about that? See, uh, where to start? I think we are, <laughs> we are all too, it's too easy for us to um, put people into silos. You know, we say, okay, this is a banker. This person, male or female, is interested in banking. It's interest and it is, you know, returns on investment. But people are, I mean, wherever they work, there are always people who are sensitive to issues, who are open to issues. And I think I struck lucky because when I uh, uh, started working in this field, actually I got into this through school sanitation. We found that, you know, in school sanitation, one of the major causes for toilets to go out of use was that menstrual, you know, napkins were being dumped in. So then we found, I looked out a little bit more, and we found that girls are not going to school for three to four days a month. And that is an enormous hit for women's education, something that we have always believed in. So uh, I must say, I found it a little difficult to sell, but in the end, this bank, the NDB bank, uh, gave us our first break as the as an extension of a school sanitation activity. It was quite funny because in Sri Lanka, the word uh, menstrual hygiene, hygiene management, artha is very, very unknown. I mean, even teachers uh, may not know it. But there's a similar sounding word, which is artika, which means economic. So the first time that we sent out letters, it wasn't the Arthava people who came, it was the Arthika people. <laughs> economic <laughs> teachers who turned up. 
<laughs> what? So, so the semantics of development are quite interesting. <laughs> Especially when you're putting together programs that just evidently hadn't really been pushed through before. No, this was a new thing. Yeah. But then basically when we started talking with people in the community, teachers, we started this in the school community, they all understood that menstrual hygiene management because related to sex education is not taught very well because there are all these very traditional thinking behind it that teachers don't really teach that. Mm. They gloss through it. And this leads, of course, children being children would like to, you know, get more information, uh, they would like to experiment. It leads to lots of problems. So it is always, uh, I mean, my target is keep the girl children in school. Give them the kind of facilities that they need in this difficult time to may, may ensure that they are in school. I mean, if you are having a, a menstruating girl and there is no toilet, there is no way that she can, you know, stay eight, uh, you know, six, seven, eight hours. Mm. So she doesn't come to school. It's a loss to the country. Yeah. And back to financing. What are your thoughts on financing? And and private-public partnerships and... Um, no, I think the, we have been quite successful in engaging with private sector mm. uh, and uh, again these are how maybe what, as you would say some unlikely partners getting to the act yes uh, one of the largest garment factories in sri lanka a uh, big conglomerate uh, it works for all these big international brands called brandix lanka supported climate change adaptation training for community based women who are officers of those organizations it's quite a lot away from what they are telling. And I really respect Brandix for this reason. They were ready to invest in the intangibles, women's empowerment. Very often, private sector companies invest in the tangibles. You could give them a well, a toilet, a hospital. You, you see it, you touch it. But how do you measure women's empowerment? There are always... I mean, you, you you can't say, look, you have had five days of training, ladies, so you are now empowered. empowered. Go. That's <laughs> not the way it works. <laughs> no. And how do they measure women's empowerment? No, I think it, what we see is that they felt it is important that information should be given to people who need it. Yeah. I believe in a citizen science approach. I think that we should give information to people who may not be our traditional target group. But we owe it to them, especially in this um, um, scenario of, you know, where disasters are piling one on top of the other. We, we need to inform them because sometimes in their responses to uh, disasters, we also may learn a lot. I think that I would like development professionals to go with an open mind, ready to learn, not to teach. Hmm. Do you see that that's happening more and more? Well, at least some people change. Yeah, I think it is a matter of you know, uh, that uh, we instill the principle of lifelong learning. Speaking about um, professionals, I'm thinking in particular about young water professionals and uh, ways to include their voices in different projects and programs and even just making that data accessible to people in schools so that they can work with that data and start to understand that data and hopefully apply the data in a way that 
maybe brings about some benefit for their community. Um, I know you've been quite involved also with supporting young water professionals and, and being a voice for having them a part of forums like this, <laughs> a part of projects. Um, where do you see the young water professional movement going and what do you think is a, a real opportunity for those people? I think this kind of work splits into two. One is, uh, you know, school programs where you teach and work with school children. And the other that you do with young water professionals who probably somebody below 35 in the traditional water sector. Uh, I, in fact, just before I came, we had a very interesting program done by a young water professional group uh, in an area called Badulla, Uwa province which has tremendous water issues. Now, the young water professionals themselves did a survey uh, which also uh, highlighted their own issues, what they see as constraints and challenges. I don't recollect all of it, but I do remember that they made specific uh, reference to the young women water professionals' issues because uh, that is the time that, you know, you are getting married, you are having children, you have to cope with being a young mother with relatively young children, you may not have the support systems of your own nannies and grannies, and you may have to, uh, you know, balance uh, career with domestic demands. Very often, career suffers. Okay. But then there should be systems where they can come back yeah. into the system, because otherwise we have lost the entire investment we made in this woman. Yes. I mean, I, I think the water sector would... Uh, needs to understand that it is really the, you know, your return on investment. Yes. I mean, if you spend, uh, spend uh, maybe from 25 to 35 working for an organization, you know, that's 10 years of experience which you can't replicate. No. If you lose this person, that's gone. Yeah. Do you think that this issue is one of the ones that maybe leads to the lack of women in water leadership in certain parts of the world? Yeah. Yes, probably, because globally I think it is, uh, we have about 17% of women in the water sector management. This is probably the reason. Mm. But I do know, I remember once a Malaysian uh, administrator telling that how he balanced this, uh, you know, the, the attrition, he uh, would send them the woman engineers and the husband on transfer to the same area, you know, in the uh, out of the town, so that at least there would be that continuation of family life and the uh, woman water professional would not drop out. Yeah. You need sensitive administrators. You really need to have that. Mm -hmm. I would like to pick your brain a little bit about the um, Partnership for Women in Water. Uh, and I'm hoping you can speak about that. You spoke about the development of it um, with your paper. I want to pick your brain a little bit about the um, Partnership for Women in Water. Uh, and I'm hoping you can speak about that. You spoke about the development of it um, with your paper and with the conversations that started around Stockholm back in 96. How has the partnership for women, partnership of women in water, evolved, and what are its key objectives, and how can others who are really passionate about these issues support the partnership or other gender equity initiatives that you're aware of out there? Well, uh, I am seen as a bit of a maverick because I think I uh, protested loudly in Stockholm and had a 
protest meeting against my own chair, which means I was not expected to survive too long in the water sector. But, but I, I, I believe that what I did that day in Stockholm was only resonated with a lot of people who understood the need. So that led to managerial changes. Basically, I I'm, uh, when we started this network of women water professionals in Sri Lanka, it is to bring together women who have can have maybe some kind of a sharing of issues, sharing of challenges, but it was also for us to be a conduit for women in the community who had no voice, to ensure that their voice is going to be replicated, in, I mean, responded to. Mm. Because, you know, you will not go to a village and have women popping up and say, I want this, this pipe is in the wrong place, why are you putting a well where there is no water? No, you have to have separate, you have to be very sensitive in how you do your research. Probably you will have to meet the men and women separately, identify the issues, then come and see whether you can have a consensus building um, uh, activity. So, uh, Asian women are coming from a fairly secluded context. I've written about this quite a bit. And Asian women water professionals are the natural conduit for accessing them. Mm. We can go where they can't, other men can't go. They will tell us things that they will not tell male professionals. And have their voices been heard through this mechanism? Well, I must say for the last uh, many years, there is uh, at least people understand that there must be gender representation. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's, it is really, it, we still have maybe some distance to go as is witnessed by what we've experienced thus far here. However, um, there's been definite progress. Yes, definitely there are changes from country to country and even organization to organization. Yes. I think that, you know, the water supply agencies would find it easier to make that gender connection because, you know, women and water are kind of seen as synonymous. You know, women have been water carriers, if you take it in the most yeah. difficult sense of the word. Well, women across the world, I think, are the household water managers. It's but in the case of uh, situations such as irrigation and agriculture, the women's participation and contribution is much more difficult to map. To map. Mm. So it's an ongoing, really an ongoing it's effort. It's really an ongoing. You know, sometimes, you know, you think that you have achieved quite a bit and you go into a meeting where you have an array of black suits and one woman standing there. And this is what I wrote 1996. Uh, you had also, in your earlier presentation, said that less than 1% of funding is dedicated to uh, women's organizations working in the water sector. Yeah. I'm wondering if you have any ideas about why that is and if you have any possible solutions that might help change that. I, I know that there's um, there really is a lot of challenges even even if you look at what's happening, for example, in San Francisco with a lot of the startups, they're not, there's not a focused, dedicated fund to support female startups. Um, it's a very male-dominated culture, and there has been a lot of um, criticism of that. And I feel like what you have said about what's happening with funding, with funding is, is exactly the same in a sense. Um, and I'm wondering if maybe setting targets would be appropriate, if maybe empowering or developing certain funds in order to funnel money specifically to women would be appropriate. Um, if you have any ideas, love to hear them. 
No, I think that uh, setting quotas is always useful. Now, for instance, you know, like if you look at the Norway situation, you know, yes. you had a situation where you had uh, wanted women professional, women politicians in, and you set a quota. Yes. And then after a while, you know, you will find that you don't need a quota. No. Because people have got used to the habit of getting involved. You have got used to the habit of having women politicians. Now, if you take Sri Lanka, we have a disastrously low women's representation in in uh, in uh, politics. In spite of all these other good healthy indices, development indices, that needs pushing. I think the government wants to take up the issue now. I'm very happy that they are going to do it. Uh, but, uh, you know, a woman a professional or a woman politician is not only because she's a woman, but because there is a certain significant activity that she can input, especially in these conservative Asian societies. So... It's not just setting a quota to change it, but it's also developing a system of mentoring and education to support the women in being able to realize where she can make a, a lasting and valuable contribution um, in that space, for example. Yes, I, th- I think uh, uh, that the mentoring and coaching is a very important element, which really doesn't come into the Asian professional's equation. Mm. Just it's not been done in the culture or... I, I, it's now that you know maybe you have talked these words of coaching and mentoring, mm. but uh, I think it's still very low. It's an initial stages. Initial stages. <laughs> There's much more to go. And in terms of addressing that 1% funding gap, do you have any, um, even just visionary ideas about how that can be addressed? Because that is shocking and it surprised me. Well, it is, uh, you simply have to. I think in that case, the quota might be the most effective. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that you have to put in uh, money, good money into dumb projects. You really have to ensure to work with people to do good startups, to, you know, really work their way through, write good proposals. So that is where the coaching and mentoring. Is there anything else that you would like to speak about in this interview? Any other like burning issues that are in the back of your mind or messages that you want to just get out there? I think the burning issues is that I am quite appalled at what we are doing to our water towers. We are not looking after catchments. We are looking at a situation where we are, um, um, we are moving between one disaster and another. And all of them are water-related. Sri Lanka is having, like I said, a two-year drought at one end massive floods at the other end and in between landslides. So I think we have as men and women and men and female water professionals, we have to understand that if we are going to be suffering these major droughts, we are doing something wrong with our water towers. We are simply not looking after the catchments. And that is for us, I think, for me this is personally uh, a challenge and an activity where I would really like to highlight, draw attention, and rectify. And my question is about additional sources of information or um, any advice that you'd like to share with anybody who listens to this interview and is really excited about the work that you're doing and would like to do some do some additional research or work with different organizations. Is there anything um, that you could provide in terms of either advice or resources to people? I think I'm trying to maintain a very low profile. <laughs> there is no, there must be stuff written in. But uh, what I would uh, advise people to do is, you know, simply 
go out and take a situation and try and view it from a different lens, yeah. a gendered lens. So even for women who are going out and looking at situations, try and view it from the male perspective? Mm-hmm. Or yeah, I also think about uh, inclusion in terms of people who have disabilities. How can we look at how access or you know, other issues comes into play with, with, with those disabilities and taking that perspective. Great. Well, with that, thank you very much for your time. It's really been great to speak with you. Keeney is an initiative of the Australian Water Partnership and the International Water Centre Alumni Network. Keeney connects water managers and shares knowledge throughout the Asia-Pacific. Visit our website at keeney.org.au for more information and for videos, articles, news and more.